0: So this past week, one thing I'm sure each of us has done is ask for something, All right? So in our lives, with our, with our families, our roommates, our coworkers, our professors, one thing uh, we find ourselves constantly doing is, is asking that question, hey, can you do me a favor? Can, can you do this for me? Uh, and sometimes those requests seem small, right? They seem like not big uh, deals. So, questions like, "Can you stop by the store on your way home and pick up some milk?" Right? Or, "Can you come up just early to church maybe this week and help set up the connect table?" Which is awesome. Thank you, setup team. Uh, other questions, though, I think seem a lot bigger. So, like, "Would you would you help me work through this struggling relationship?" Or, "Hey Washington Nationals, could you just make it past the first round of the playoffs sometime?" <laughs> In all seriousness, though, in the church, uh, we often find ourselves in need of one another's help, whether it's for encouragement or prayer or accountability. But when does a request for help become too much to ask? When, when do we refrain from asking a favor or hearing someone out because the demand just seems too great? Has that happened to you this past week? Well, today we come to God's word and in it we see a request made of God, a prayer for him to do something great, but it doesn't end there. And we see at the end of our passage, a hymn of praise to God reminding us that he is so powerful, nothing requested of him is too much to ask. So in our Sunday morning gatherings here at LVBC, we've been working our way through the letter of Ephesians in the New Testament. You can turn with me there. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can just listen up. I'll be reading our passages for us. Uh, If you don't have a Bible at home that you can use easily, we have Bibles we'd like to give you out on the connect table. So avail yourselves of those on your way out. This morning, we're in our eighth week considering this book. So uh, Ephesians, as a refresher, is a letter uh, written by uh, a missionary of the early church named Paul. He's writing to a group of churches around the city of Ephesus in what is now modern-day Turkey. And as you look at this book, uh, you'll see that it's six chapters long. Uh, Now, Paul didn't write this letter in chapters. Those were put in later. But even still, as we look at it now, uh, his letter breaks down nicely into two parts, uh, each part three chapters long. So in chapters uh, one through three, first, he spends time teaching the truths of the gospel and what it means to be united to Christ by faith. And then in chapters four through six, he applies that gospel to life. And starts to flesh out what it means for us to live out the gospel in the way that we share life together, especially in the church. So he begins by talking about who we are, and then he talks about how we should live. Uh, This morning, we come to the end of that first part about who we are. So we're arriving at the end of chapter 3. And Lord willing, next week we'll dig into chapter 4 and then continue on to chapter 6. But for now, let's notice how Paul wraps up this first half of his letter how he wraps up this teaching on the gospel. So follow along with me as I read our passage from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ Than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul wraps up the first half of his letter with praise and doxology. Praise and doxology. Uh, Doxology means words of praise to God. So a prayer and doxology, sorry. Uh, so we see Paul's prayer there in verses 14 through 19. And then we see his words of praise, his doxology in verses 20 through 21. And those will be our two points for this morning. Uh, so first, prayer. We'll spend the great majority of our time there. So, But if we get done with the first point, you're like, wow, does he realize what time it is? Don't worry, that's the, that's the longest point. Uh, and then finally, we'll finish up with doxology. So let's start there in verse 14 with Paul's prayer. And you may recall from last week, we saw how Paul had actually started to pray back in verse 1 of chapter 3. Uh, You can look there and see how in in verse 1 he said, For this reason I, Paul, and he continued. And it seems like he intended to begin a prayer for the church. Uh, But then, as we saw last week, he interrupted himself after he labeled himself as a prisoner of Christ on behalf of the Gentiles. So he kind of stopped after that and he said he wanted to explain about that more and and what that meant and how he was in prison because he was called to minister the gospel to the Gentiles. But here in our passage, he gets back to what he was getting at there in verse 1. And in light of what he's been saying, he really starts to pray. He says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So, uh, by way of reminder, uh, Paul says, for this reason. So, what, what's he been saying? What's the reason that he's praying? Uh, Paul has been talking about the peace and reconciliation that Jesus has accomplished for his church through his cross. So, back in chapter 2, we saw how before Christ came, Paul says a dividing wall existed between Jews and Gentiles. So, the Jews were God's people in the Old Testament, uh, those who worshipped him, those who received his law, Uh, But the Gentiles were far off from God's people and far off from God Himself. They were separated from God's promises, Paul says. But the news that Paul has been rejoicing in since he wrote that is that Jesus has come, and when He died, He took the punishment that both Jews and Gentiles deserved for sin. He, He poured out His mercy, mercy on both of those, both those who were near and familiar with God, the Jews and those who are far off and cut off from God, the Gentiles. By dying for them, Jesus kind of took a sledgehammer to that dividing wall that separated them. Remember how he did that. Paul has repeatedly talked about what it means to be a Christian in terms of being united to Christ, being in Christ. That's a key phrase for our study in Ephesians. And what Paul means by that is that as Christians our identity is now wrapped up in and and irreversibly tied to the identity of Jesus. That sounds complex, right? But here's what Paul's getting at. The only way for us to be right with God is if we're joined to the person who is right with God, to the only person who is right with God, with Christ himself. So as sinners, by birth, we naturally come in the line of Adam, The first man, the first person who sinned against God. We are his descendants, not just uh, physically, but, but spiritually, because we have inherited his sin nature. But what it means to be united now to Christ is to be transferred out of Adam's spiritual sin line into the line of Christ. Christians are those who are positioned now as descendants of Christ spiritually, given all his righteousness imputed to them. That's what Jesus has done for his people. He has taken our guilt and given us his perfect holiness. He died. He was raised to life. He now lives triumphant over death and over hell. And as those who are joined to him by faith, we share in all that he has done. We are, after all, Paul says, the body of Christ. So this means that we have his new life. We're made alive with him, Paul has said at the beginning of chapter 2. That's how we're saved. We repent of our sins. We turn to him. We trust in him and we're made spiritually alive by the Holy Spirit and joined to God's son. And so the great mystery of the gospel, Paul has been saying over the past few chapters here in Ephesians is that since Jesus has now united both Jew and Gentile to Christ, to himself, well, he has united both Jew and Gentile to each other. He has made sinners right with God and right with each other. In doing so, he has created a new community where both Jews and Gentiles come in equally by faith, trusting in Christ, being made God's new people, the church. So Paul's prayer here that we're looking at this morning comes in that context, of what he's been saying about the gospel and about the church. He sees this church as, or the church, as this new creation in Christ, and it's in light of that now that he turns to prayer. Now, perhaps you're with us this morning and you don't claim to be a Christian. You don't understand yourself to be a Christian. At the very least, this gospel that Paul's been describing, that we've just kind of did a flyover of, uh, the news that we're all sinners deserving of God's judgment But Christ has come to bear the penalty in our place and die for us and give us new life. That doesn't sound like something you trust in on a regular basis. Well, friend, we're so grateful that you're here. So you could be many other places this morning, but you've chosen to be here and and we thank you for that. And to be fair, we just want to be really clear with you. Uh, This news of this new community in Christ is the news we rejoice in and celebrate on Sundays. This is the only reason we have to join together as a church and not go tailgate at the football game. This is why we spend Sunday mornings like this. We are sinners in need of salvation, and we've found that salvation in Jesus Christ. And we want you to know that that salvation is offered to you this morning as well. If you would turn from your sin and place your trust in Christ, trusting in his sacrificial death in your place, taking your sins on himself, you will be saved. Come talk to us afterwards about that. We could spend our afternoon in no better way than to share with you more about what it means to believe in Christ. Well, let's continue on to verse 14 and see who it is that Paul is praying to. He is praying to God the Father. So for those united to Christ, united to the one who is God's son, we are now also God's sons and daughters and can call him father. This has been a theme for Paul so far in his letter. Uh, So one of the greatest blessings of being united to Christ, he has said, is having this unrestricted, direct access to God. Uh, We don't need to fear that he'll judge us for our sin anymore because he has judged Jesus in our place. So now we can come boldly before him as those whom he loves, even as he loves his only begotten son. Remember the illustration we used a few weeks ago of trying to get a meeting with the president, right? Uh, In each of our situations, that would be an impossible task, at least very difficult, right? But then we talked about what, what would it be like if we were actually the son or daughter of the president. That would make it a whole different story. We would be assured that he would welcome us in. And in the same way, in Christ, we have God, we have the ruler of the universe as our father. We have unlimited, unrestricted access to him. Uh, We've seen this in chapter 2, verse 18, where Paul says we both have access, speaking of the Jew and Gentile in one spirit to the Father. And then we saw it again last week in chapter 3, verse 12, where Paul says that in Christ we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Well, Paul goes on there to say that in verse, in verse 15 of our passages that this Father is the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I think that's clear enough, right? Uh, there are different opinions on what that phrase means. So some scholars say it means that God is the father to his whole family. So it's a reference to the church. Uh, others say that that word should actually be translated fatherhood, not family. So it's a kind of a little play on words with God as our father. And it really means that all earthly fatherhood is derived from God's ultimate fatherhood. I, I think... Both interpretations help us understand the text, and they both have their merits. Uh, but regardless of which one we might land on, one thing I think we can say with confidence as we look at those words is that this doesn't mean God is father to the whole world the way he is father to his particular people, the church. God watches over his church as father in a unique way, and yet he also sustains and is the originator of the entire universe. He is its creator and its source of life. And so this kind of grand view of the Father is the one who Paul comes to in prayer. He gets down on his knees, and he prays. And if we were reading this letter for the first time, if we were kind of these churches that Paul was writing to in the first century, I wonder what we would be expecting him to pray after all of that, right? After all those incredibly rich truths about God, about our salvation, what's he going to say? How's he going to ask God to be at work in the church? For those of us who are Christians this morning, we we make it a practice of muttering about how little we pray, don't we? It's usually actually a prayer request. Uh, we say we want to pray. Uh, we know it's important. But we admit, and I admit, there often seem to be so much better things to do with our time. Uh, Things that are either more productive or more relaxing. Something that prayer doesn't seem to be either of those things. Well, as an encouragement to us, let's commit to thinking again about prayer. and, And what we should be praying for ourselves and for our church as we look at this prayer of Paul's over the next few minutes. Look there in verse 16, Paul begins... By praying that according to the riches of his glory, he, speaking of God the Father, may grant you, the churches Paul's writing to, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So Paul asks that in all the riches of God's glory, in all the weight of who he is as creator and father, that in all of that he would give a gift. And that that gift would be being strengthened with the power of the Holy Spirit so that Christ might dwell in our hearts through faith. Uh, Those two phrases are tightly connected in Paul's mind. So Paul here is tying the Spirit's presence in our lives with Christ's presence in our lives. So the person of Christ doesn't live in our hearts, right? Jesus is forever in his body, glorified body, reigning with his Father in heaven, and he's coming back with judgment and salvation. But Jesus does indwell every Christian precisely because the spirit of Christ indwells every Christian. Jesus' spirit makes us alive in Christ and he carries out in us, speaking of the spirit, a continuing work of becoming more and more like Jesus. We'll have opportunity to think more about the spirit's work in the weeks to come. But at this point, you you may have a question for Paul. Paul, aren't you writing this to Christians? You're writing this to the church, right? So you're writing this to those who are already in Christ, who already have the Spirit. So why why are you praying and asking God to indwell the church with the Spirit of Christ, if that's already the case? Well, we can be sure Paul isn't talking about conversion here, about kind of the first time turning from sin to Christ. The Bible is clear that every, Christ, every Christian is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. There is no Christian who is not also inhabited by the Spirit of God. Uh, so Paul, I think, is, is saying that there are degrees to our spiritual maturity, to understanding who Jesus is and what he has made us to be. And, and we see this there in that word dwell. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Uh, That word doesn't mean kind of make a quick stop in our hearts through faith. it has a sense of kind of settling down, of making himself at home, of renovating our hearts, of sanctifying us in holiness. Uh, The late Philadelphia pastor, James Boyce, said it this way, this prayer is that Christ might settle down in our hearts and control our hearts as our rightful owner. So certainly... We need to pray for that, don't we? As Christians, this is a lifelong lesson for us. Submitting to Jesus as the one who owns and rules our hearts. Something we need the Spirit's help with. While Paul continues to pray there at the end of verse 17, as the church is strengthened with the power of the Spirit and is indwelled by Christ, Paul prays that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So Paul prays that this new community of the people of God that has been created through the cross, this church might be rooted and grounded in love. So the first word there kind of brings to mind a plant, right? Or a tree, something that has its roots down deep in love. And then that second word brings to mind a building. So something that is grounded, that has a foundation in love. So Paul's thinking about all that we've seen about the love of Christ in Ephesians so far. And he's thinking about how that love is now shown to one another in the church. And he's praying that the churches he's writing to would be rooted and grounded in that love. And then in light of all that, Paul prays at the churches he's writing to, and we can take this prayer for our church today as well, that we would have strength together with all the saints to be able to comprehend, to wrap our minds around what is the breadth and length and height and depth of Christ's love. Think back with me to what Paul has already said about this love of Christ. And what it has meant for the recipients of this letter so far. So, thus far, Paul has said that in Christ we have every blessing in the heavenly places. We have been adopted as God's children, calling him our Father. We have been redeemed, delivered from the condemnation we rightfully deserve for sin. We've been sealed for an inheritance by the Holy Spirit. In Christ we have been made alive. We've been called out of spiritual death and regenerated by the Spirit. In Christ, we have been seated in the heavenly places, reigning as victors over our enemies of sin and death and the devil. Uh, We have been saved by grace, not because of anything we have done, but because God has set his love on us. We have been brought near to God through Christ's cross. We're no longer far off and separated. We are now members of the new community created by the gospel, the new people of God, the the church, the body of Christ. And so Paul looks at all of this, and like he prayed at the end of chapter 1, he wants the church to know these truths, to know the love of Christ, to actually grasp it, to realize more and more by the power of the Spirit what the love of Christ means for the church. And we get a sense of the grandness of God's plan and Christ's love that surpasses knowledge as we see those dimensional terms that Paul uses in verse 18, right? Paul prays that we would know the breadth and length and height and depth. He's praying that we would know the full dimensions of Christ's love. I wonder, have you ever been in a place where you just felt so overwhelmed by the sheer expanse of everything around you. I remember being in a cathedral in Germany several years ago and just standing and looking at all of the grandeur around me at the, the ceiling, kind of mimicking a sky. Maybe you've been to the U S Capitol building down the street in DC. And like me, you remember standing in that main rotunda and looking straight up into the inside of the Capitol dome, uh, remember that sense of being overwhelmed by the breadth, the length, the height, the depth. And that's just man-made structures, right? I mean, once you go outside, it's a whole different ballgame. So this past week, my family and I took uh, a few short hikes, at least that's what we called them, uh, out to Raven's Rock there at Bear's Den in on the Blue Ridge. I'm sure many of you have been there. And when you're there and the visibility is good... Uh, you can see for miles and miles, right? You can see Route 7 heading out west. You can see the Shenandoah snake its way through the mountains. And, and then you catch yourself looking up. And then everything there that you've seen on earth just looks small. And you kind of get dizzy thinking about how little you are. I come away kind of sometimes a little shaken, a little like, am I going to fall off the earth? Like, what, what's up there? How small we really are. Paul uses dimensional terms here to communicate how expansive the love of Christ truly is. John Stott reflects on this verse and he writes, the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind, especially Jews and Gentiles, the theme of these chapters. It's long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner, and high enough to exalt him to heaven. One of the ways hymn writers throughout the history of the church have tried to express the love of Christ is by looking at the ocean. Kind of one of the most powerful things we can look at. Something that man cannot harness. Uh, We'll end our service today by, by singing a new version of that old hymn, Oh the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus. And just listen to the words that the hymn writer uses. Oh the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless free rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me underneath me all around me is the current of your love leading onward leading homeward to your glorious rest above i think those words and that imagery helps us in just a small way comprehend how small we are and how great the love of christ is it's vast as vast as the landscape of the ocean when you stand on the edge of the sand or when you look out from uh, an airplane cabin, right? It just doesn't end. It knows no end. It's, It's mighty, as mighty as the waves that crash on the shore that threaten to suck you in with its powerful currents. And yet it's also close. It surrounds the Christian. It breaks down the barriers between us and God and unites us to Christ and will lead us home to glory. Remember what Jason read for us earlier from Romans 8 about how nothing can separate us from that love. One author rephrases it like this. Whether you go forward or backward, up to the heights or down to the depths, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. And so Paul finishes his prayer by praying that we would know this love of Christ, that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. This really is the greatest request of them all. These requests kind of escalate in grandeur. Paul prays that we might grow into the fullness of God. He prays that even in our struggles with sin, even this side of heaven, we might have power to become more and more like Jesus, more and more formed into the fullness of God. To be holy as God is holy. This is not an unrealistic expectation from Paul. But how is it possible, church? And how can we know Christ's love to that extent? How can we grow to be like Jesus? We know our hearts. How can we experience his love and just kind of be overwhelmed like Paul seems to be and just talk about dimensions and how expansive Christ's love is? Maybe this kind of talk feels mystical to you. And you're wondering if you just need to get into some sort of spiritual mood in order to be able to comprehend it. Maybe you think you just need to get away from all the chaos of life. The woods are a great place to understand Christ's love, which they are. Or maybe maybe they just feel completely foreign to you. So relishing the love of Christ and being overwhelmed by it like Paul in this passage seems like something you've actually never really experienced. And you're wondering if you've missed something. Well, let me remind you, Christian, that the love of Christ is something we will experience and something that we must want to experience more. But it's not merely just a good feeling we have. I think we must remember especially in this text that experiencing the love of Christ will always be connected to knowing Christ to knowing the love of Christ. If we rely solely on our feelings to get a sense of this love, I think we will be perennially discouraged. Instead, church, let's continually root our feelings in in what we know about the love of Christ towards us. Let's look at this love and seek to experience it because of all that we've read about in Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3. I, I encourage you if, you, if you want to know this love, pray this prayer of Paul as you come to God's word this week. As you pick up the Bible, pray, Lord, I, I come now in need of your grace. I've struggled with sin. I've loved other things more than you. But I know that I'm in Christ And as your child, I ask you to reveal Christ to me through your word, by your spirit. Show me clearly how great his love is. Help me to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. As you pray that, you're going to be praying something that God is all too pleased to answer. And so pray with boldness and joy. And let me just point out one more thing here. Remember, Paul is not writing this to individual Christians. He's writing this to a group of Christian churches. So, last week we looked at chapter 3, verse 10, and we saw that God's plan is to make his manifold wisdom known through the church. And then down in verse 21, we'll see that Paul desires that God be glorified in the church. And then look with me there at verse 18. Notice that Paul prays that we would be able to comprehend with all the saints the love of Christ. And so, Christian, your pursuit of the knowledge of the love of Christ will be severely hampered, if not impossible, if you cut yourself off from his body, from the church. I know I'm preaching to the choir here, right? You're in church. Uh, Some of you have come early to set up church, uh, you're coming to the new to the members meeting tonight if you're part of the core group. But lest we forget and kind of just fall into the routine of typical church life, let's just remember the reason we gather here. It's not merely to be another nonprofit religious organization in the area that can provide church services. It's not merely so that kids will get good moral teaching and be set up for life. It's not to be a way for folks to feel that kind of spiritual need and then leave feeling better about themselves. No, we are a church family and our ultimate goal is to seek the love of Christ and exalt him in our life together. Jesus is the goal of our church. And as members of this church, we have a responsibility to one another to help each other grow in knowing him. It's a group effort. So by attending on Sunday mornings, by singing, by praying, by making relationships, by listening to the sermon, we are serving each other. We're helping one another grow and understand the love of Christ. This is something we do with all the saints. Paul's prayer here should remind us to pray this for our church. Pray that we would have strength to comprehend the love of Christ with all the saints. Well, that's our first point this morning. That was the longest point. Let's continue on and briefly look at Paul's doxology, at those final two verses, Paul's words of praise to God. Look there in verse 20. Paul praises God and says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So Paul has just prayed a big prayer, right? He has asked God to give us power to be able to understand the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Big prayer. Now he turns and he praises God for God's ability. You see what he's doing? After praying a big prayer, Paul reminds us that we have a big God. He says that God is able, but there's more. He says that God is able to do far more, but wait. He says that God is able to do far more abundantly, there's more. He says he's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. And I'm not sure about you, but I have a pretty good imagination, I think a lot of things. He's able to do far more abundantly beyond that. This is the God to whom Paul prays and the one to whom he gives worship. The love of Christ surpasses knowledge and so does the power of God. He works in us, Paul says at the end of verse 20, according to the power at work within us. Again, referring to the work of the spirit, the powerful life-giving spirit of Christ that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in our hearts you know, all throughout this passage and really all throughout Ephesians to this point, Christians, I think we see the amazing way that God, the Trinity works in our salvation and Christians and non-Christians alike get hung up on the Trinity. So the Trinity is uh, the truth from God's word that there's only one God, but he exists eternally in three persons, father, son, and spirit. Uh, Each one is fully God. God, And that sounds really complex to us. I think it should, because our God is wonderfully complex. But as we look at this text, I think we should should see also that the work of God, the Trinity, and his people is wonderfully clear and amazing. Uh, The Trinity works in tandem to mature us in Christ. So the Father, in his mercy, grants us understanding of his Son's love through his Spirit. And all of this is for our ultimate salvation, ultimately for God's glory. And so, church, I think we can stop and marvel that for those of us who are in Christ, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have purposed from eternity to focus the power and the love of the Godhead on us. It had nothing to do with us. We were God's enemies. But in his mercy, he has revealed himself to us so that we might trust in him and spend eternity with him. What, what a wise, powerful, and, and kind God we pray to. Paul finishes this whole first section of Ephesians by giving all praise to God. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And so, brothers and sisters, I, I wonder, does the God Paul prays to here and worships here sound like the God you pray to? The God that you have worshiped this past week? Is your God this big? Is he able to do far more abundantly than all you ask or think? Is he able to give you a clear understanding of Christ's love? Is he able to care for you? Is he able to control the universe? Is he zealous for his own glory? Or is the God you find yourself praying to most primarily concerned with your material comfort and not much more? Have you stopped asking him for big things, for glory in the world, for his salvation to the ends of the earth? Like we said at the very beginning of our sermon, are you afraid you'll ask him for too much? One writer puts it like this. It is impossible to ask God for too much. His capacity for giving far exceeds his people's capacity for asking or even imagining. So church, let's behold this grand vision of who we are in Christ and who our God is. He is above all things. He will receive all glory from everyone forever. So let's, let's take a cue from Paul and let's pray. Let's pray that God would give us even greater knowledge of the love of Christ and that that would just increase more and more until, until we see him face to face. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would strengthen Loudoun Valley Baptist Church. Strengthen us with power through your Spirit so that Christ may rule in our hearts. And we ask that you would root us and ground us in love for one another. Love that looks like Christ's love. We ask that you would give us the ability to comprehend with all the saints the great dimensions of our Savior's love. Father, fill us up with all your fullness and help us, we pray. You can do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And so do that. Be at work in us. Do great things, not for our glory, but for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.